passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to Post Wrestling. It is John Pollock here with you. Our guest today was the host of TSN's Off the Record beginning in September of 1997, a show that had many identities, one of which was becoming the go-to Canadian platform for some of the biggest figures within professional wrestling out of character and treated like any other industry in a serious form. He's also the founder of Sick Not, Not Weak, and it's my pleasure to welcome Michael Landsberg to Post Wrestling. Michael, thank you a lot for doing this. Hey, John, my pleasure. And uh, just uh, to indicate how important uh, this has been to my life, uh, I would say almost n- there's almost no day that goes by that someone doesn't uh, call out to me on the street or say in a conversation, hey, Landsberg, love those wrestling interviews. I mean, uh, and I-, I can say that without boasting because I think they were awesome but I was only a small part of why they were awesome. So uh, it's weird how even this length of time later, they still resonate with people. Yeah. And we'll get into that. Like, I think they, they are really, you know, for, for many people, it was, you know, these, these figures that did not do these types of interviews out of character and to such a, a widespread audience. But just, just quickly to give people um, just taking us back to 1997, the concept itself of off the record, how is it pitched to you? And was this something that signed me up immediately? Or was there some trepidation? Because you're already a pretty established personality at TSN. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, all, all of that, I think there was more excitement than trepidation. I had done uh, what was then Sports Desk, but Sports Center now. I had done that 11 p.m. Uh, and 2 a.m. for, I don't know, four or five years previous. Uh, and I loved it, right? You know, I kind of, I kind of was able to do it my way, right? Which was, uh, you know, to be, um, to be different than, you know, virtually everyone else. And there were people that liked that and people that disliked that, but I was always good with it because I always sort of felt like it was true to me, but I wanted, I just wanted to be able to show more of me and your opportunities are less on a show like Sports Center because the show is really the star, right? I mean, you're telling, you're telling important sports news stories so you're always limited in the number of opportunities you can have Mm -hmm. to really put your mark on it but then um, this idea comes along it was presented to me by a guy named Keith Pelley who is one of the best known TV executives in Canada he went on and for the last I guess six or seven years he has been uh, the commissioner of the European golf tour which is a massive job uh, and is reflective of his creativity and he came to me and said you want to you want to do a talk show I got this idea called off the record well, um, because after me and a handful of others got a hold of the idea, the only thing that really lived um, from his idea was the name off the record. Yeah. Um, you know, we changed uh, a lot of it. There was a, at the time there was a show called um, uh, Bill Maher. It was called Politically Incorrect. Yes. Uh, and he had four guests on a show um, from different worlds, all talking about topics that they may or may not have had an expertise on. 
And I love that idea. So our, our goal was to bring something similar to that, um, to sports. Um, and we were allowed to do it, but we also knew that if it was not successful right away, we probably would have made a massive mistake. So to answer your question, sorry for being long winded, but oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the answer is I was incredibly excited. I felt like it was this amazing gift. Uh, and when you get a blank page to create something on, that's the dream, but also the nightmare. The dream is that, Hey, I get, I get, to, I get to do something. I get to put my mark on something. I get to, I get to think of things and then execute them. The downside is the nightmare is that this blank page that you have is pretty intimidating. So September 8th, 1997, two weeks before we're, you know, we're going, okay, what the hell are we going to do with this show? Um, so I think the fear of failure was also a great motivator um, for me, because as you say, I, I did have something already going at TSN. And if I'm remembering correctly, you know, Sports Desk, which later became Sports Center, it was in that 6 p.m. Eastern time slot. Off the record is now put in that big time slot. So it seems right off the get go, you realize that TSN is all in on this show. It's not something we're putting it in, you know, Friday afternoons and hopefully find an audience. It's it's five days a week and they were very committed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually would disagree with that. I, I think that you're inflating the importance back then. You would have no way of knowing this. But back then, six o'clock was a throwaway time for them. Sports Center or Sports Desk actually went from 630 to 7. So that was, it was a half hour show at that point. Six o'clock was a show where they only played un, until we came along, uh, packaged ESPN shows, right? So, um, stuff that drew a very small audience. TSN never garnered an audience at six o'clock. Um, so they really weren't risking anything. And it wasn't quite the compliment that you would suggest it would be, you know, based on how they were so committed to it. It was kind of like, hey, we got nothing to lose. We're not making any money at six o'clock. So let's see if we can do something that um, that actually will be useful to us. So let me rephrase that. TSN wanted this thing to tank and Michael Landsberg was going to rescue this thing into one of the most successful franchises in Canadian sports history. OK, well, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase your rephrase and say, hey, we think that um, Landsberg, uh, you know, maybe is suited as a polarizing guy to do in a talk show. Uh, and we got nothing to lose because it's six o'clock where where we're going to put this show. We're not doing anything now anyway. So if it's modestly successful, that's probably good enough for us. So I think that was the way they looked at it. Well, one positive to the six o'clock time start, start is that on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, it immediately followed Raw on Tuesdays, Nitro on Wednesdays. And it was a perfect segue because, you know, yeah. off the record really carved out um, its its identity, I think, with a lot of these pro wrestling interviews. Was that something from the get go that, hey, we've got the we've got the Canadian rights here. This is something we can explore. And was there a debate among how we cover pro wrestling that is sort of like the circus when it's when it's equated to regular sports that you're covering? Yeah, it's uh, the evolution of it was um, was hugely important to us, first of all. Uh, second of all, I think when I, when I share the importance of it, I think that I will add a few other footnotes to the history of Off the Record, which really give credit where credit is due. The first thing is, before we talk about wrestling, the first thing is the TSN was incredibly powerful at the time. Mm -hmm. um, people came home from work uh, and still watched television, which was a pretty big thing compared to now. And they turned on their televisions at, you know, when they got home from work, they put their TVs on TSN. 
So I, as I've said before, I think any idiot could have hosted and produced a show at that time and got a decent audience, right? Like, I'm not saying the show wasn't ever good, and I'm not saying that we didn't do anything to bring more of an audience in. But it was pretty hard to fail at that point at TSN because TSN owned the marketplace. Uh, second of all, we lucked into the wrestling thing. On, on the Thursday of our first week, Bret Hart was a guest uh, with two other people. Um, so it was kind of in those days, we only had three guests on a show unless we were doing a one on one interview, which we actually never really thought about until we found out uh, or until Bret Hart said to me after the show. And he's a very low talker. Like, you know, I, I, I really I really enjoyed that. You know, I appreciate, you know, how you uh, how you look at wrestling and, um, you know, how you uh, how you you're very serious about it. And that's very important to me. Uh, I think you should have me back, but I should be on by myself. Um, so he said that to me, uh, and I thought to myself, yeah, he's probably right, you know, but yeah. I had no idea of the power of a Bret Hart, the power of a Bret Hart coming out of raw, the power of Bret Hart talking out of character was massive. So we kind of lucked into that. It was kind of his idea. And uh, fortunately, Vince McMahon saw that, uh, and thought, yeah, you know what? Good, good for them. Good for my guys. They're being portrayed in a really good way. They're being treated really seriously. You know, like he's asking questions that are well-founded and, you know, based on on really good research. So essentially, he came to us and said, hey, you can have everybody. Uh, and, you know, they're all out of character. And that was um, kind of like our dive into this amazingly um, successful world of uh, talking to wrestlers. And Vince included himself in that. So that was a huge thing. A huge thing also was the Survivor Series. The screw job happened in that fall. And Brett, because he now trusted us and trusted me, wanted to talk about it. He wanted to use us as a platform. And Vince saw that and thought, okay, well, I better answer, Brett. Uh, and he saw us as a platform as well. So it just, it, you know, we kind of... Uh, we kind of just fell into it. And, uh, the, again, just to, uh, to point out how, um, how little I necessarily had to do with the success. Um, we had a guy named Jeff Merrick. I, I don't know if you know Jeff. Jeff is uh, on Sportsnet hosting hockey. He did a show called Live Audio Wrestling. He was the most knowledgeable wrestling guy in Canada by a mile, probably in the world for North American wrestling. Uh, and he, uh, he was buddies with the guy who became producer of the show, Bob Makowitz. Uh, Bob Makowitz was also a wrestling fan, but Jeff came in and helped us write questions. And he would give me questions. He would say, you have to ask this question. Ask The Rock what he was thinking when he was backstage and fill in the blank. And it was, it was gold, right? It was like guys would, would look and go, Hey, how did you know that? And they would give me an answer that was, uh, hugely enlightening for the people who were watching. And like I said, that was Jeff. And that was, that was Bob, but more Jeff than anyone. He gave us gold. He, like he said, ask Undertaker about Shawn Michaels coming back, um, and not doing the job for Vince and you telling him backstage, you know, you get back out there and you do the job or, you know, I'm, I'm going to kick the crap out of you. Like, so I, I, I asked him that. Is it true that you threatened him? I don't remember how I said it. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's true. You guys got to do the job. So, uh, I looked like the ultimate wrestling guru, uh, the ultimate journalist. Um, but I, I think I was, uh, I was supported so well from, from underneath or from behind. Do you think that helped in the sense that, that you weren't, you know, 
passionately following professional wrestling that you could kind of just take a step back, look at this. What is the news element of that I want out of this interview? And I don't have these emotional attachments that, you know, someone growing up a wrestling fan might have. Uh, that totally. That's a great question. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't fanboy, right? You know, I, I was, you know, I mean, people don't believe me when I say this, but, um, you know, when we started off the record, I hadn't watched wrestling in 10 years. You know, I got engaged in it because it was good for our business and because I actually really started to like it and because I knew the personalities and I just found it to be a really fun world to be living in. But I, you know, I hadn't watched wrestling in 10 years when they said, I think we can book this true story. When they said, I think Vince is going to let us have Stone Cold Steve Austin. I, I didn't say it out. Well, maybe I did say it out loud. It was like, I, I don't, I don't know anything about him. Right. And then I went from that guy to a guy who um, all of a sudden is living in that world and is not acting like a fanboy, but acting like uh, probably more than anything else I did. I was a journalist on those shows because the most part I, I kind of saw my job as just being, you know, an entertainer from the standpoint of trying to create a half hour of entertainment. But because uh, I never refer to myself as a journalist, but on those shows, it was really very often confrontational mm-hmm. and get to the truth. When it came to whether it be a, a Vince McMahon level character and Eric Bischoff, you know, I would imagine for a lot of the, the panel shows, you maybe are finding out your guests the day of. How much lead time are you typically getting when, hey, Vince McMahon is coming up and the preparation that would be that would go into an interview like that? Yeah, I think it was probably a couple of weeks. I think that there was ample time to uh, to do as much as you could do. Now, keep in mind, when you do a daily show, you can't really focus. Uh, you can't focus too much or rephrase that. You can't focus all of your attention even though you might want to, on Vince McMahon coming up uh, two weeks today, say, you know, we know Vince is going to be on the show. It'd be great to spend two weeks researching it. But between now and then, you got 10 shows you got to do, right? So there's only a finite amount that you can do. So, uh, but I would say that we focused on research uh, more for those shows than anything we ever did. And the first interview you do, it's interesting, you do three significant interviews with Vince McMahon, and there are these chapters of his of his career. In February of 1998, it's WCW is still ahead, but they're just about to explode. Then you have the summer of 99, where they're on top of the world, but coming off the, the Owen Hart tragedy. And then in June of 2004, a very different Vince McMahon, where it feels like here's a guy that has won the race. He has won. And you see these very... I think distinct versions of Vince McMahon. What, what is your initial impression that that first interview and do you sit down with him b- beforehand? I mean, how does Vince McMahon strike you um, during that, that first uh, interview that you do in 1998? It, it, you know, that was hugely important to me uh, and my, um, and, and this is not something that I, I would have ever shared. This is kind of like my internal business, but in doing that job, uh, probably if you said to me, you know, what, what would you, what did you do wrong in, in off the record? Meaning like, what, what didn't you like about you in general? And what did you like about you in general? Um, I would say the thing that I'm most proud of is being able to debate Vince McMahon on wrestling. Like, think about it. That's his life, right? Mm-hmm. Like he knows everything about his company and his people. And I have to insert myself now into his life. And I have to have the confidence to go toe to toe with him. And I think Survivor Series um, gave me that confidence. I mean, I remember him the first time he was on the show. I was standing behind him. He was getting makeup. 
And I, I said something kind of typical Landsberg, right? Some kind of smart ass remark to him. And I thought, wow, I just, I just kind of smart assed Vince McMahon. And that was, I didn't say that out loud, but in my head, that was like, Hey, you know, you're not intimidated by him. You can do this. Uh, and that's kind of the biggest challenge that you have doing a sports talk show, say, that is not based on one sport. And if it's one sport, you know, if all you do is cover hockey, then you can learn basically everything about hockey. But, you know, one day we were talking about wrestling. The next day it was football. The next day it was baseball. So wrestling, especially with my lack of background, you know, I was really, I was just really proud of myself. I never said this to anyone, but it's like, wow, you know, you can debate Vince on his territory. Same thing with Dana White when we started doing UFC and I started having conversations with him. It's like, I'm challenging this guy on his life, right? You better be sure of your facts and you better be able to come back. Otherwise, you're going to make a fool of yourself. And I think that's the interesting contrast is that you know, Vince McMahon, you know, two fair, very famous incidents that would happen in, in future years was the, the one with Bob Costas on real sports where I, I think he certainly, he respected Bob Costas, but you just see the, the flip, he turns the, the switch and becomes Mr. McMahon. And then there's another one with Armin Catan and he slams the notes out of him. I mean, just, I don't think he respected him at all. In watching the interviews with you, I don't think there was any question. He had a great deal of respect for you, and there wasn't even the hint that he would go that direction with you. I just think you two had that rapport, and it was very much you brought the questions very forcefully to him, and I I think he played off of that very well. Yeah, you know, I uh, I, I agree with that. And again, I'm 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 not saying, hey, look what I did. I'm I'm saying more, look what we did. Uh, and I've already you know sort of deferred to Jeff and said, hey, you know, I could never, I wouldn't have had those great questions for Vince. Uh, if if not for Jeff Merrick. And it's those great questions. I mean, the ultimate compliment for somebody is when they walk in to be interviewed and you know tons about them and that you have created this list of questions in your own mind or on paper that um, that will challenge them. Because, because, you know, a guy like Vince would do a million interviews, right? You know, he doesn't want to be asked the same questions. So the fact that, that we took him seriously, I, I think is a compliment and I think it uh, is how we avoided, you know, the Bob Costas thing. Like Bob Costas treated him like he was kind of a circus barker, right? And I love Bob Costas. Don't get me wrong, but he did not distinguish. Uh, he, I'm sorry, he distinguished between if there was four guests that he was interviewing back to back to back to back. The first one was uh, was a baseball player. The second one was an NFL player. The third was a golfer, and the fourth was Vince McMahon. He would have done. The baseball player, the football player, and the golfer, he would have treated them seriously and asked questions that were relevant and uh, thought-provoking. When he got to Vince, he would have totally flipped and done something which is basically, um, hey, you know, Vince, wow, that wrestling is, you, you know, are you guys really being serious? Or it's all fake, right? He didn't treat it the same way, and I think that um, Vince read that and, and got pissed off about it. Now, with, with the Vince McMahon interviews um, – you know, some of them were, you did these two part interviews, others, the, the, the 99 one, it's, it's uh, 22 and a half minutes. And how did you find uh, just uh, across the board with the one on one interviews? Did you like the fact that you had this, this contained time that we can 
what are the most pressing topics that we are going to get to? Or was that a real handicap that 22 minutes goes by very quickly in television when you're working in commercials and trying to get in the, the most compelling content in that limited time frame? Right. I think I, I, you're right. And I, I think that poses other challenges. A, you got to go with the best material. B, if you're not getting the answer that you want that you think is interesting, you better cut the person off because you can't afford to waste it, right? If you're, if you're recording an interview and you're recording an hour's worth of material and you're going to cut it down to 22 minutes, then, hey, let a guy ramble on or a woman ramble on as long as they want. But those minutes are precious. And if you give it up to a crappy two minute answer, your, uh, your show's now down from 22 minutes to 20 minutes. Uh, I think there's a sense of urgency though that you bring to it that, uh, and, a, and a sense of aggressiveness for me that I brought to it that I probably wouldn't have brought to, um, an unlimited amount of time. A lot of, a lot of shows like we did are not done live to tape, but are recorded and edited, right? So you can take your best 22 minutes, but we didn't have that luxury. So I felt like every moment had to be our best moment and everybody who was giving me an answer, if, if they needed to be challenged, needed to be challenged, like right away. Like I got in my own mind, what I, what I got really good at was, whoa, 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 whoa. The, whoa, 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 five times. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, Vince. You just said that you agreed with Brett beforehand that it would be a draw. And then you call it, he ends up losing. And you say you didn't lie to Brett. Like, I, I don't understand. So like that kind of urgency, uh, I think really comes across because of the time frame that we're trying to work into. It, it's, uh, cause I just, I rewatched all of the interviews and it's a phenomenal moment. And as well, like to, to your credit, I know you kind of like downplay your part. A lot of hosts, they will not be listening to the answer that is being given. And you caught him right in, in that, it, like it was a checkmate moment where he had to concede. Yes, I, I lied to him and, and he did not want to volunteer that information, but you pulled it out of him. Yeah, I kept saying, if I remember correctly, uh, I kept saying, I, I don't understand. Like you, you, you agreed to a draw. And then, uh, you, uh, then he, you call it and he loses the match. Like, how, how is that not lying to him? Well, I didn't lie to him. Well, it doesn't matter how many times you say it. You know, the evidence suggests otherwise. And again, that was, that was, you know, I, I think that gave me, uh, both a conscious and subconscious confidence, you know, cause let's face it, like Vince is, you know, can be intimidating, especially Vince on Vince. If Vince and I were talking about, uh, about, uh, hockey. And, um, concussions in hockey, which he would have an advantage because concussions obviously are a huge issue in wrestling, but still we'd be on largely an even playing field, right? Like we're not talking about his world. We're talking about a neutral world. But now, like in this discussion, uh, in all of the interviews, like I'm, I'm living on, on his desert island and, you know, technically he's got a huge advantage over me because he's talking about his own life. In, in the summer of 1999, um, you and the TSN crew, you go down to WWE headquarters and it's a series of interviews, a one-on-one -on -one with Vince, then a very unique one with Vince and Linda. And then you do one with uh, Shane McMahon and his sister Stephanie. Tell me a little bit about just the process of those coming together and, and going to their home turf in Stanford to do these interviews. Yeah. I, I think that that was, I mean, I'd like to think that that was Vince going, hey, you know, because it was uh, it was based on Owen Hart, right? It was yes, based it was on just his right death. after and, that. And Vince, I, I think he wanted to uh, he wanted to discuss it. He knew he had to discuss it, and we were kind of a logical place to discuss it because he knew that we would um, that we would 
treat it like the news story it was. Uh, because we never treated the WWE like it was a freak show, right? Like we just treated it like it was, it was, you know, a sports organization, just like you would the National Football League. So I think he, uh, he trusted us to handle it. Uh, he knew that we were a, a good voice for him, that he'd get a great audience to watch it. Uh, and I'd like to think, I mean, it'd be a compliment to, to think that, you know, Vince thought, okay, you know what? This is a really tough topic. I'm going to get those guys to come down here. So I'm on my home turf and, you know, maybe they're, they're, it's a little easier, um, to slip stuff by them. I'd like to think that, but that probably wasn't the case. He probably just thought, yeah, I don't feel like going up there. It's easier for me to be here. So the evolution of that was he reached out to us and said, you know, I think you guys should come down and do an interview, um, with me about, uh, about Owen. And of course, you know, we love that. Um, we got down there and as we were going down, we thought, okay, well, you know, we're going to, we're taking the time to go down there. Let's do more than one show, right? Like a wrestling show can't be bad for ratings. So let's do one with Vince and Linda and then let's do one with the two kids. And, uh, they were up for that. Uh, I remember Bob Makowitz. So, so it's really weird to go into someone else's home mm -hmm. and produce a television show. So Bob, producer of the show, is, as typically happens, he's in my ear, right? So Bob's now, you know, he's he's in the control room, right? He's producing a, a show in the WWE control room, which is kind of unnatural. So he's using, you know, their staff, obviously, their their director and their uh, switcher. So he's uh, so he says to me on the first one with Vince, he goes, Michael, Shane is going nuts in here. I go, uh, I couldn't respond to him, right? He goes, you know, he says, I'm going to fucking kick that guy's ass. He's being rude to my dad. And this, like, so this is, I'm hearing him tell me that. And I'm wow. thinking, I'm thinking, I wasn't worried. Like, he's not going to kick my ass. And if he did, it'd probably be the best thing that ever happened to me. Because think of my fame, um, you know, from getting my ass kicked or not by, uh, by Shane McMahon. So... Uh, it was a really fun, eventful day, uh, fun, although the subject matter obviously was really painful. Was there any issue with Shane when he sat down? No, but I could see him looking at me like, like kind of skeptically, which was okay. I mean, uh, you know, by that point in my, uh, off the record career, you know, I pissed lots of people off. So I had no problem with that. See, here, here's the rules of a talk show that I, that I believe. There's no, the only bad guest is a boring guest. That's, that's it. Like people ask me, you know, all the time, who's your favorite guest and who, who did you hate? And I, I went, well, it doesn't matter if I hated them personally. You know, hatred can be a really good a confrontational interview it makes great television. Uh, but what makes terrible television is somebody who's just dull and boring and uninteresting. So, uh, I kind of, I kind of, my priorities were always. Let's, let's make it, let's make it good. But good could mean, um, revealing. Good could mean funny. Good could mean, um, uh, a scrap, you know, between me and the guest. That makes for good television. Did you find a different dynamic in speaking to Vince when he had Linda by his side? You know, I don't remember exactly how I felt, but yeah, I, I think he was probably, he was probably, um, I, I think he was probably, um, respectful of her and made sure that um that he did not dominate the interview now i don't remember i i mean you saw the interview um more recently obviously than i did 
but I don't know. Was I, I, I think he deferred to her, which I, you know, probably is not the most natural way for him. Uh, and I, I, I found, uh, I found him much more likable than her. Not to say I didn't like her, because uh, that would not be the case. But I, I felt like she was giving less of herself to this interview than, than he was. I felt like she was protective and skeptical about someone who was getting the chance to ask these questions. Whereas I think Vince kind of went, Hey, this is good for me, right? You know, the more he pushes me, the better an interview it is. And the more honest I seem and the better that is for my company. She definitely seemed more out of her element, and I think that extended when she would be put on on television, like just not someone very naturally suited for that. Which which made it interesting when she started, uh, you know, run, running for the Senate and yeah. and having a spotlight on her nonstop. Yeah, yeah the fact that when she uh, when she spoke at uh, at the Republican convention uh, when they nominated Trump, kind of, I mean, I, I hate Trump, right? I hate what he's done to America. What he, you know, the toxicity that has blown north, I think, has affected us. But I just, I, I just hated her shilling for him because, you know, she didn't believe any of that shit. It was just good for, it was, you know, like there was money in it for everyone to support Donald Trump. This post wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, Their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister. And putting away more money for retirement. Because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. How much have you followed of just the, the fallout of Vince McMahon now? Pretty much, I mean, he's still the the controlling shareholder of his company, but largely left w- without power, and has and now looks like it's life after WWE for Vince McMahon. Something I don't think anyone expected. Yeah, I, I was uh, was reading something about uh, I don't know if it came from Meltzer or whom it came from, but essentially they were saying that. You know, the last while Vince has really lost control of the creative and the creative in WWE. And this is not my assessment, but has been has been really crappy and needs to get back on track. So in theory, this could be a good thing. And I think people are saying that, you know, Triple H has done a good job so far with the creative. Uh, but what shocked me was just the criticism that uh, that I read about Vince before he was forced to step down. I mean, would you agree with that criticism? Yes, yes. I, I think that you know, with with Vince McMahon, just just hearing stories from there, it sounded like it was it's a very chaotic environment, which is you know somewhat just par for the course in, in WWE. But I, I think as well, like he's somebody that you know he's he's now seventy seven years old. It's it's very difficult to have your your same level of um, pulse on the marketplace at, at that at that stage of things. And I think he had largely just. Um, started to misunderstand his audience over the years, like not having that, that same fastball that got him to, to where he was. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, uh, I guess it's predictable in that, you know, doing his job, uh, anybody who does the creative for that or anything else has to 
um, when they determine who's our audience, right, then mm-hmm. you got to think like your audience. Uh, and that becomes tougher, I think, the further you get away chronologically from your audience, but also, you know, lifestyle wise. Obviously, Vince was a genius at thinking like his audience for years and years and years. That's why uh, that's why they were so successful. But I think uh, I think everyone at some point is going to lose some of that ability. Uh, just a few more questions here for you. As many was, as you want. This is fun. Was there ever a point that uh, WWF reached out and wanted to bring you on? Uh, well, they reached out. I went down there for an audition. Uh, and uh, I mean, this was kind of for me to be totally honest. It was like, wow, this is really cool. WWE wants me to come down. So I'm going to go down there and do, uh, do, you know, this audition for them. But it's not like it's not like I wanted necessarily even wanted a job with them because I didn't think I was well cast in that job. Right. So uh, but it was fun to go down there. It was fun to do the uh, the audition. Uh, it was Michael Cole came in and started asking me questions and challenging me and, you know, trying to be um, trying to kind of uh, I think he was trying to he was just trying to piss me off and see how I reacted. Um, so I really enjoyed it. But I also thought to myself, well, like. What am I going to do? I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do play by play. I'm not well cast for that. Uh, I don't have the, you know, the breadth of knowledge to do that. What I really thought was, you know, do you want to have a role for someone outside of the company to interview people at the company? Because that gives you, you know, credibility. Let's face it. You know, when, when any of the announcers for WWE, you know, Michael Cole does an interview with, uh, with any of the stars, no one's believing that he's really trying to get to the truth, right? It's part of the act. Uh, if they wanted someone to, to, um, to break from that and ask questions that, um, that were not scripted and were not trying to get guys over, um, then I was their guy. But that role has never existed and probably never will. Did you have other aspirations of, of going to, to the U.S.? Because th- there was a point that, I mean, off the record had grown. And at, at what point are, are you looking at what's, what's the next step for me? Is, is the U.S. something that it, some broadcasters are not interested in that? Was, was that something yeah, that interested you? You know, I, I think, I think it's two things. Number one, uh, I wasn't really interested because I believed in bringing up our kids in, uh, in the city with their grandparents. I mean, my parents lived five blocks from us. My in-laws lived eight blocks from us. I thought that that was really good and really healthy for my kids to have that kind of relationship with with their grandparents, which um, which you can't have if you live in a different place. Um, but also, like I, I, you know, wasn't like they're knocking on my door. I was kind of always see. I always had this, and, and I think one of the reasons why I was really well suited for wrestling is because the perception of ego and uh, even of arrogance doesn't hurt you in the world of wrestling. But I was always seen as, as the arrogant guy, as being not that likable to a certain group of people. Uh, and mainstream broadcasters typically want people who uh, everybody is going to either like or feel neutral about. Uh, and I was kind of, uh, I was a guy who, uh, who could appeal to a smaller audience. And the only time in my life that I was really given the chance to appeal to a larger audience was in the 2010 Olympics. Keith Pelly, who I told you created off the record, um, asked me to host, uh, on, on CTV, which was like, I mean, the rules for CTV are different. The rules are on CTV or CBC, uh, in hockey is you just don't want anyone not to watch you. 
you want everyone to tune in and you're better off being neutral than you are pissing anyone off. And I was always the guy who who people didn't like. And uh, I always kind of courted that and liked that. But I think it also uh, I think it also hurt me to some extent. Yeah, that's uh, the the picture you paint. It just it sounds so dull when you when you don't have those those personalities that that push buttons. And I I personally felt you were just such a fantastic host. And maybe Bill Maher is a good comparison. Like he is somebody that there are people that loathe. There are people that love Bill Maher, but he is also he's a fantastic host. When you look at the the format of that live show on Friday nights and all the elements yeah. in the corporate. Yeah, you, you know, thank you. Um, I think it's also some people don't want to piss people off. Some people don't want to alienate a part of the business. I would say most people who, who do hockey, who host hockey, you know, are very aware of not pissing people off. Uh, and I always looked at off the record as not auditioning for any other job in the future. So I didn't care. You know, I was only working for, I guess I was working for my employers, but mostly I was just working for, um, the, the guy at home or the girl at home who was watching, right? So I, I didn't care if, uh, you know, if an NHL general manager, um, said, fuck Landsberg, man, that guy, like, I hate that guy. Like, like I, I, I took that as, as being a compliment because, you know, if you're challenging someone on their life, if you're trying to get to the bottom of something, um, some of them should actually be pissed off at you. Was there ever, uh, not so much, you know, pissing off the guest, but when that guest is also a right holder on, on the network, did you ever run into those battles or was it, this is the news side and that is separate from the programming side and yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the two will not mingle? That's a great question uh, and uh, a valid question. And I think the best thing I had going for me, two things, uh, I had uh, really good employers who protected me. You know, uh, because as I said to them, I said, look, you know, you want me to be up against the line, right? So I'm not, I, you know, and the line, you want me to push the boundaries of what has been sort of typical non-confrontational broadcasting in Canada. But you can't, you can't get mad at me, uh, for more than, you know, a, a moment, uh, if I cross the line, right? Because if you're nudging up against the line all the time, eventually you're going to say something that, that crosses the line. So they always protected me and they always stood up for me and they always said, Hey, don't worry about it. You know, like we'll make it go away when people were pissed at things I said. And I always had, I think, a, a pretty good awareness of where the line was about how you could, uh, you could be forceful and aggressive, uh, especially with rights holders, as you talked about, but not be, uh, um, not be, offensive to the point that it got you in trouble. I remember, I mean, this would have been one of our first years. Um, there's a guy named Jim Thompson who passed away, but he was, uh, he was, uh, he was my boss's boss, right? So he was, and he was really hard on talent. Uh, he, uh, I, I think he found it really annoying that he had to have people hosting shows. I think he wanted, you know, he would rather have had a computer. Um, but he, um, he came up to me because Dick Pound, who was then uh, one, one of the most influential people at the IOC, sure. um, was a guest on the show. And he came up to me. I saw him in the elevator as I was going down to greet Dick and to, um, to go do the show. He went to me, don't screw it up. <laughs> this is really important to us. You better not piss him off. And I thought, okay, well, that's not exactly what I wanted to hear, but that was an example of, um, you know, leave, be a journalist light, 
meaning, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be asking about the corruption, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in the IOC. Maybe you shouldn't be asking him about, you know, whether they actually want to catch cheats or not because TSN was negotiating for the rights. Yeah. It's, it's always, you know, a, a difficult, um, line to to balance uh, as well but i thought you know in the case specific to pro wrestling you had the very unique environment that not only are you the canadian rights holder for wwf but you are for wcw as well like you have you know these competing cable properties in the u.s that are on the same network up here in canada you had access to both and it didn't seem like there were you know you didn't uh, exercise any restraints in, in your interviews yeah, you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, we were a lot tighter with, uh, WWE, obviously, than WCW. Um, I, I think, uh, I quite enjoyed Eric Bischoff. Uh, you know, he came in, like, like, I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but he kind of walked in and it was like, he's going, yeah, you know what? I'm not taking this guy's shit. I'm going to show him that I'm smarter than him. I'm not going to back down, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's, it's on. Landsberg, uh, and I, I, I quite like that. I thought it, I thought it was really fun. Very, uh, much more confrontational, I think, than Vince was. And, uh, cause Vince had no chip on his shoulder. Uh, Eric did. Eric is a super smart guy and, uh, I enjoyed talking to him, but I always got the impression that, um, it was, uh, it was a battle for him, uh, that he wanted to win really badly. Yeah, it was it was right at the tail end of WCW's dominance. And this was the famous line that he gave to you that uh, Tuesday afternoons aren't as fun anymore when the ratings come in because it's so predictable. And uh, within weeks, the uh, the tide was was turning for uh, at least in the in the U.S. market. Yeah. Uh, be- before we let you go here, I obviously want to uh, to focus on y- your foundation, sick, not weak, which I mean, we've we spent most of this time talking about your uh, talents as a broadcaster. But I really believe that this is. What your legacy is going to be, Michael, um, we have a mutual friend in Moral Ronaldo who um, is someone that mm-hmm. has also been uh, very public about his struggles with mental health. And I just have the the utmost respect that you have put the, your your story out there for, for a lot of people that maybe are not as willing to be so so public and to uh, empathize with, with, with you as well. Um, can you t- tell us just a bit about the the progress um, of Sick Not Weak that you have focused so much of your time with? Okay, I got a tattoo on my arm. It says 112408 YULMH5210400. That is November 24th, 2008. YUL is the Montreal airport code. So Montreal, uh, MH521 is Marriott Hotel Room 521 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, that was the lowest point for me in, uh, in, in my life, mental health wise. And I understood why people take their own lives. We were shooting off the record at the Great Cup. I had been really sick for about a year and I memorialized it on my arm with a tattoo recently because I think it's a really good thought starter and it's a way to say to people, Hey, I'm not ashamed. Hey, you know, like suicide is this, the word that you're never supposed to or people aren't comfortable using. So I mentioned that because I'm super proud of the fact that I'm a badass with a tattoo and because uh, a year later when I was feeling better, I was, uh, I, Stefan Riche was a guest on the show, former um, New Jersey Devil, Montreal Canadian, two-time Stanley Cup champion. And as I was going to the green room, uh, I read that he battled depression in the 1990s. I had never spoken about depression, even though, um, as I just mentioned, it had really had a serious effect on my life. Uh, I thought, okay, I'd like to ask him how he's doing. I wasn't planning on talking about it. I never spoke about it before that because I thought no one would care. I wasn't ashamed or embarrassed. Everybody in my life knew. I would have talked about it anytime. I just didn't know there was a value to it. 
So I said to him, you know, Stefan, would it be okay if I asked you about depression? And he said, I'd rather not talk about it. I'm talking fast now, I know, because it's a long story. And I think it's an important story. He said, I, I, uh, I'd rather not talk about it. And I said, okay, I understand that. I don't want to put you in a bad position. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he said, what would you talk about? So I told him. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we went on the air. We talked for maybe two minutes. And when the show went to air, so 6 to 6.30, the show's on. At 6.45, I'm out for dinner with my family and my wife's family. And I start getting emails forwarded to me from, from the show. And that changed the course of my life. That's where Sick Not Week was born. That's where I learned the value of this. Totally changed the direction of my life. Because all of these emails essentially said almost the same thing. They were almost all for men. And they almost all said, hey, Michael, uh, watching you and Stefan Riche talk about mental health without shame and embarrassment has inspired me to tell you something in this letter that I've never told another human being. I am battling depression. I have never told anyone. Therefore, I've never gotten help. But this has helped me to hear you guys. And like I read that like repeatedly and I'm going, oh, my God, how did this happen? It was like a total shock to me. I had no idea about the depth of the stigma and how it affected people. So that was kind of the uh, the journey into this. Uh, and that journey has uh, has gone on now, I guess, for uh, 13 years. In terms of the, the stigma, where do you feel the public is at? And specifically men that, that, that you bring up that of where the, the, the comfort level is. Uh, I, I think we're not nearly as far ahead as we'd like to think we are. I think because we've heard the word stigma used so many times. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think it's lost impact. Like if you say, I'm going to give a really important talk today about the stigma around mental illness. I think that there is a tune out factor where people go, God, the stigma. I hear this all the time. I think we need another name for it, another word to describe it. But I, I, I do believe that we have made progress. But I also believe that um, people very seldom are aware that they are part of the problem. If you ask people how many, and I I do this because I give talks all the time, how many people in the room would say that in 2022, mental illness still is uh, affected by the stigma? Everyone puts up their hand. How many of you think that you're part of the problem? No one puts up their hand. And my point is that, hey, like I I get that. If you would have asked me before I got into this, I would have said I'm part of the problem too. But it's very difficult to make appreciable changes in people's attitudes if they don't think they're part of the problem. I'll say, you know, on that same day, how many of you think racism is a problem? They'll put up their hands and I'll say, how many of you are racist? No one puts up their hands. And I think there's a self-awareness that we need because it's easy to believe I'm not part of the problem. It's much more difficult to say, you know, maybe I'm not reacting like I should to my partner or my son or daughter or brother or sister or friend when they talk about their mental illness. Maybe I am part of the problem. How about access to, to resources? If someone is going through depression, understands it and okay, what's, what's the next step? Like, you know, yeah. speaking to someone might be out of my, my price range. Like what, what do you, say to people that are just looking for, okay, what is the next step after? Yeah, I got no, I got no answer for that. Right. Because you know what, what, like it's a flawed system. It's a system that actually was never built like a system. You know, in, in a lot of ways it's 2022 with neurology and cardiology and all of the ologies that are, um, that are, have made huge changes technically over the years, the way they treat it. But psychiatry or psychology, I think is still 1965. There is no system. The system is you go to your family doctor, and if you're lucky, your family doctor uh, has some decent advice for you. If not, he's going to give you or she's going to give you a recommendation, a referral for a psychiatrist that will be a year and a half away. 
or to a psychologist that maybe costs more money than you can afford because you don't have the benefits to cover it or it runs out right away. Huge problem and not one that I can necessarily really answer. Uh, I mean, how, how do you jump the line? But if everyone's trying to jump the line, then that's not helping the problem. So, yeah, it's a huge thing, but kind of out of my pay grade. Well, uh, Michael, I I appreciate like all that, that you have done uh, just w- when it comes to uh, post- posting videos, updates about yourself. Like I, I find it to be like you're you're one of my the more compelling follows that uh, I have online. And it's uh, been really great uh, for you to be so gracious uh, with your time here. I have gone uh, much over than than what I had uh, negotiated with you to, to do. So I very much appreciate uh, this extended chat as well. And I, I hope down the road, maybe we can do round two. Hey, you know what? All you have to do to qualify for round two is ask me exceptionally well-prepared host as, as you were, um, thoughtful questions that, um, uh, are kind of what a guy like me, you know, really wants, right. You know, challenge me, ask me questions that make me think. So, uh, and it's kind of fun to reminisce about that part of my life. Well, Michael, you, uh, you, you had a, a big impact, uh, just in, in terms of me, like breaking into this industry. If I listen back to, I would go back and listen to some of my early interviews and I would hear, Maybe this is like a comedian. Sometimes they find like, wow, I'm really doing someone else's voice. I would certainly detect in myself. I'm like, I, I definitely am asking these questions like Michael Landsberg and, uh, I needed to carve my own, uh, my, my own voice, but, but you had a, a big impact just in terms of someone that was seriously interviewing wrestlers and it wasn't tongue in cheek or looking down on the industry. Awesome. That's, uh, that's a nice thing to say. Uh, I think everybody has to find their own way. Uh, I don't think everybody does. I think everybody, uh, many people end up being uh, a duplicate of, uh, of others that are out there. Um, so, you know, to anyone who's aspiring to be a broadcaster, just decide you're going to do it in a way no one else can do it because no one else is you. Uh, so, like I said, um, and do you, uh, have you heard from or about Moro at all, Ronaldo? He's uh, he, he's down in Los Angeles right now. He just did a he just did a big reality show on uh, on CBS. But we're in contact like pretty pretty regularly. But overall, he seems to be doing. Uh, Send me his contact. Well. Love to reach out to him. I will. I will pass okay. that along to you. That is going to wrap it up, everybody. Uh, you can go to sicknotweek.com, and uh, Michael is on Twitter at Hey Landsberg. And this has been a great chat. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. Thanks for having me.